Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. So last week we talked about these, or I'm going to say that a bunch of times, just know when I say last week, I mean two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we talked about these three intertwined arguments, or perhaps better said, main argument with two uh, supplemental reasons why the main argument is true. Um, And essentially, in chapters 9 and 10, Paul opens these up to us. He says, number one, God's Word didn't fail. When when God said that He was going to do these things to the nation and through the nation, those things have been accomplished. They have been fulfilled or completed in Jesus. The problem is, Paul says, is that Israel stumbled, and they stumbled because when Jesus appeared, or the Messiah appeared, He didn't look like what they expected. From Old Testament prophecy, they expected the Messiah to look like a conquering king that would come and vanquish their enemies and and in their specific case, remember, would defeat the Romans, would uh, liberate Israel, reinstate a, a king on the throne of David. And so when Jesus came not looking like that, they missed Him. They stumbled. As a matter of fact, one of the terms... The, the Greek word that's used here is scandalon, from which we get our English word scandalous. It, it is something that is so uh, unbelievable, we just can't understand it. And, it, and uh, as, the, as the Old Testament says, it, it caused them to stumble and trip over it. Um, the other archetype that we see of the, of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament comes from the book of Daniel, where he is said to be one like the Son of Man. This heavenly being that is all-powerful, that by his mere word he can cause uh, all of God's enemies to to fall, to die, to be vanquished. And um, so the Messiah in Jesus didn't look like either one of those archetypes. And so they stumbled. They couldn't see it. Today we're going to see kind of exactly what that means. How that, that stumbling occurred. And then that stumbling produced in them a hard-heartedness. So because Jesus didn't look like what their expectations were, they weren't open to the evidence, the new evidence that was offered. And so, uh, as Paul says, the mystery then went over their heads because they couldn't see. So all of these these arguments, if you will, these, these things are wrapped up in chapters 9, 10, and 11 as Paul tries to show us that although Israel didn't believe, that is not catastrophic to the message of the gospel. As a matter of fact, God has known that and has understood that, and it is part of the plan the entire time. And so then Paul's going to end with this doxology that essentially says how amazing God is to even think of this plan to begin with. So let's start there, and then we'll come back. Go to the end of chapter 11. Uh, verse 33, where Paul says, Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, 
How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracking out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That sounds like a good place to pause. And let's pray and ask God, since He is wise, since He is uh, all-knowing, let's ask Him to help Him uh, for His help as we seek to understand this passage. So let's pray. Uh, God, we thank You that um, You have recorded these verses for us. Uh, Father, I pray that You will open our eyes, that we might be able to see and understand. Uh, Father, those areas that we struggle to understand, I pray that we could entrust ourselves to You knowing that you are a good and faithful God, and that uh, we can trust in your character even when we don't understand your ways. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. All right. So last week, or last week, two weeks ago, uh, and I have recorded this for you on the the notes that you have. Um, The notes next week are just going to simply add to what you have. So You might want to think about this now that next week you can just kind of staple all those together uh, because that's really how how these are designed. But I just want to walk through um, where it says Israel's history, argument one and two, particularly these issues. I just want to walk back through some of these things and reintroduce simply because it's been two weeks. Um, The first thing that we have is the promise to Abraham. So, Abraham was promised an heir that would bring blessing to Israel and to the nations. This was going to be the Messiah, the promised one, called Christ in the New Testament. And I've also given you the passages that uh, those particular uh, uh, promises or covenants occur in there in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. So God says to Abraham, I'm going to bring you a son, and your son is going to produce an heir, and that and uh, the, that heir is going to lead to heirs in, in your going to be grown into a massive nation and through this nation I'm going to bring blessing to all peoples then God also gives a promise to David and the promise to David is that he is going to establish David with a representative of his family who will sit at all times on the throne of David as the king and so this is what we call in the New Testament the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven you guys finding it? That's all right. So, essentially, as God promises this kingdom of heaven through to the nation of Israel, He said it's going to come through the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to bring about this thing that we are going to call from now on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And what's fascinating then, as you get to the New Testament, the first person to come along talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is who? Who is the first person that we have? John the Baptizer. I call him John the Baptizer. You know, typically his name is John the Baptist. Uh, But when you say that, people think that, you know, he went to the Baptist church. And that's not what that means. It meant that he simply baptized people. So John the Baptizer. And uh, as John came, he he was proclaiming to people that they needed to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God was near. And, and so in essence, remember the Old Testament passages say that John's job was to prepare, prepare the way for the Messiah. 
It was to make a straight path for Him. So here comes Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of heaven. And He's going to offer the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, to the Jewish people. And John's saying, hey, you need to repent in preparation for the fact that the kingdom is here. And Jesus comes, He is baptized by John to say, I agree with John's ministry. And then Jesus began presenting to the Jewish people the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, when He would send out His disciples twice In the New Testament, we are told that Jesus sent out His disciples. And when He did that, He told them, only go to the nation of Israel. He only went to the the children of Israel because the reason was they were offering, they were saying, hey, the kingdom of God is here. When Jesus, excuse me, talks about uh, what we call the Beatitudes in John chapter 5, 6, and 7, He's talking about this is what life looks like in the kingdom of God. It's a place where rather than just not murdering, you understand that being angry is just as evil as murdering. And so love is the standard to which we are called to. Um, You understand that giving isn't something that uh, just brings um, notoriety to you, but rather the, the secret things that you do The things that you do that are sacrificial, that you do in secret, God is going to see and He's going to honor those things. And and He ends in one of the most uh, quoted verses, but seek first His kingdom and all these things will be added to you. So you can see how throughout the Gospels Jesus offered the kingdom to the nation but the problem is the nation didn't receive the kingdom because receiving the kingdom meant receiving the king. And they couldn't see Jesus as a king. He was the, the son of somebody we don't really know. He was the carpenter. He was crazy. He cast out demons by the power of demons. And so there was this confusion, this struggle that Israel had in in reconciling Jesus the the savior with Jesus the Messiah. Now, what I want to do is show you that the evidence that the Israelites would have had to work with because it's very easy for us to become conceited and say what a bunch of idiots. How couldn't they see this? Right? So I want to show you the evidence. These are the prophetic passages that would have been given to them that they had to deduce this from. Okay? Uh, The other thing that I want to talk about, Paul's going to use at the end of chapter 11 the term mystery. What is a mystery? Anybody read mystery novels or like mystery movies? What's a mystery? Okay, something that's hard to figure out. Uh, my, we like to watch a couple of cop shows, and she likes to guess, and she's really good at guessing, you know, who did it and that kind of stuff. So she's read a lot of mystery novels, apparently. What's a mystery? Something unknown? Something that we can't understand? And so, so Paul is going to talk about this in terms of a mystery, something that has yet to be revealed. It hasn't been made plain. So. Something has already happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
there is something that has happened. So it's not, it, but it, but then being revealed, it's being revealed to us. But the the event itself yep. has already happened. But we have to put the clues together to figure out what how it happened. Yes, and in addition to that, it might not have reached its completeness, its finality. And that is what we're going to see. Uh, there was a man who wrote um, around the turn of the century, uh, 1800s, 1900s, and early 1900s. His name is George Elton Ladd. And uh, he became famous for coining a phrase, now and not yet, that many of the prophecies in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus. They find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. But there is always this now and not yet capacity to their fulfillment. So they will be fulfilled partially, but the full ramifications of such have to wait until a future time. Uh, And that, I think, is is the truth of what we're going to see. So let's look at uh, Isaiah chapter 27. Uh, Isaiah, so uh, if you go to Psalms and then begin to flip towards the New Testament, a couple of books later you'll come to Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet of Israel writing during the time of the divided kingdom for the most part. Uh, he is a very prolific prophet. Uh, one of the, what we would call the major prophets of Israel because uh, he deals with a lot of different topics, a lot of different time frames, uh, a lot of different people groups. But one of the main um, topics, issues that Isaiah deals with is visions that concern the future of Israel, uh, the deliverance of Israel as a nation. Interestingly enough, he is the one that records for us the fact that God looks at Israel as a vine, which we're going to see in Romans chapter 11, uh, that God views uh, Israel as a vine. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1 In that day the Lord will punish with his sword his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan the gliding serpent, Leviathan the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not hungry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. Or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Has the Lord struck her as he struck down those who struck her? Has she been killed as those who were killed, uh, who killed her? By warfare and exile you contend with her. With his fierce blast he drives her out as on the day the east wind blows. By this then will Jacob's guilt be atoned for, and this will be the full fruitage of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the altar stones to be like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No Asherah poles or incense altars will be left standing. The fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement, forsaken like the desert. There the calves graze, there they lie down, they strip its branches bare. When its twigs are dry, they are broken off, and women come and make fires with them. For this is a people without understanding. So their maker has no compassion on them, and their creator shows them no favor. In that day, 
The Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, O Israelites, will be gathered up one by one. And in that day a great trumpet will sound. Those who were perishing in Assyria and those who were exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Now if you're an Israelite, that sounds like a great time, a great day, a great moment when Messiah comes, the trumpet blasts, and you're going to be recalled from Assyria. Remember uh, how the Assyrians uh, came and carried off captives? And, and those were exiled from, in the Babylonian captivity, they were exiled into Egypt, they ran and they fled to the desert. And so here Isaiah says, you're all going to be gathered back in that day. Think about Palm Sunday. And as the, the people gathered and they threw down the palm branches and they sang, Hosanna, Hosanna. What were they thinking? What were they waiting for? Jesus to overthrow the Roman government, to throw off the shackles, to set up and establish a kingdom and recall everybody from everywhere. And a week later, Jesus is in a tomb. This disillusionment, this stumbling, you can see where it comes from. You have expectations of grandeur and greatness and wonderment and you end up with something that leaves you feeling pretty hopeless. Right? Let's look at another one. Uh, Isaiah again, chapter 59. I'm going to read, uh, this This one gets a little bit long, so I'm just going to read some, some selections through here. It's really the whole chapter. Um, I'll start in verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor His ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. Uh, drop down to verse 9. So justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight among the strong. We are like the dead. Verse 12. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Against us, Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Verse 14. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Well, that sounds pretty good. That sounds a lot like the gospel, doesn't it? That sounds a lot like the story that we hear in the gospels. And then read the latter part of verse 17. He put on 
the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak according to what they have done so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes he will repay the islands their due from west men will fear the name of the Lord from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory for he will come like a pent up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along the redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins hmm In the short span of a verse, he tells us about the first coming of Jesus, how Jesus comes and brings about salvation with the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. And then at the end of the verse, he's talking about the second coming, where Jesus comes like a flood, like a pent-up fury, and mows over his enemies. In one verse. Do you see how the Israelites missed it? How difficult it was for them to grasp that in the span of these, and there I could take you to multiple other passages that do the same thing. In this span, the now and the not yet are encapsulated, even though they might be spanned by thousands of years. Uh, we won't turn to, uh, I'll give you two more if you want to look at these Isaiah 29, uh, chapters 9 through 24. Isaiah 29, 9-24, and then another passage in another prophet, Jeremiah 31, 30-34. These will be on the worksheets next week, but if you want them to look up. So Isaiah 29, 9-24, Jeremiah 31, 30-40. Now, here's the other thing. It's not just in the Old Testament that we read these things, turn to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 21. So, in the book of Matthew, Jesus comes along, and He's presenting the kingdom to the nation. But do you remember how many times it was specifically recorded, it would say that Jesus taught in parables so that they wouldn't understand? Do you remember that? Every time that I read that, I think, well, that stinks. That's not fair. You know, it's kind of like a PhD astrophysicist coming in here and talking about the parameters of the universe to us, and we would sit and scratch our head and say, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) I got the sun, the moon, the stars, and gravity. Once he got beyond that, yeah, he lost me. So Jesus would do this. Why? Why would he do this? Again, back to Romans, this is part of God's plan. And the other thing that we read about in the Gospels is where Jesus would say things like, for those who have ears to hear, eyes to see, those who earnestly seek me. You see, those people found understanding. The disciples and many of the others, they were able to find understanding. Yes? It's almost like it was a code. Yep. Yep. Part of the clues that the Lord has given us. Yep. Well, even in the Old Testament, we have these phrases where God will say, those who earnestly seek me. You know, those who, who forsake other things in order to find me. It, it's the idea that there is a striving after understanding. So let's look at some of these. Uh, Matthew chapter 21 and verse uh, 33. This is what we call the parable of the tenants. Uh, you will recognize it very quickly. 
listen to another parable, verse 33, Jesus says, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the, rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? That's the story. Drop down to verse 43. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him. Notice, here is Jesus telling them exactly what is happening. He does it in the form of a story. He says, God built a vineyard. Mm, Isaiah talks about a vine. Maybe the vineyard and the vine in the vineyard is Israel. And he says, you know, I I let somebody else run it for me. The chief priests, scribes, the teachers of the law. And he says, this is what happened. I sent my prophets to them. And they beat them and they killed them. And ultimately I sent my son. Jesus had already at this time claimed to be the Son of God. And so, what did they do to Him? They killed Him. Uh, and they were, they, it was obvious to them that Jesus, the parable, was about them. They were the evil tenants. But G, here's Jesus saying, this is what is happening. Wake up! Uh, the next parable, the parable of the wedding banquet, I encourage you to read that one this week. Again, it's the same thing. Uh, it, Jesus tells the story and he says a man's going to have a wedding and so he invites all of his friends and his friends are all busy. The friends are Israel. And he says, fine, go out, find anybody you can and bring them in. And so they brought in just people from the streets uh, and obviously that is about the Gentiles being able to come in. The last passage that I want to look at before we go to Romans is John. Because John shares for us, in a different way, what is happening. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. John shares this in a more just succinct way. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man that was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision, or a husband's will, 
but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John then shares this as one who was going to be a witness. So John says, Jesus came and we made a mistake. As a nation, we did not accept Him, we did not believe Him, and we rejected Him. And so, now I'm here, John says, I'm here as a witness. I saw His glory. I saw the glory of God, and so I am here to tell others about it. And thus, on that uh, message, that paradigm, the church was built. Right? The apostles went out, and they told others about Jesus, and a new assembly was built. A new assembly that doesn't replace Israel, but it supersedes Israel, and it's what we call the church. So that then is a a look throughout the Old Testament history to say, this is why the Israelites couldn't understand it. Because God had shared it in such a way, everything that He shared was true, but God knew in His infinite wisdom that if Israel accepted the kingdom of God at the offering of Jesus, what would happen to you and I? We would be forever on the outside looking in. That's why Paul concludes with, Oh, the depth and the riches of God's love. Now, let's dive into... That's an incredibly long introduction to what will be a short time in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, Paul begins, he says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. Does everybody remember this story? Elijah with the prophets of Baal. And he says, God, I'm the only one. And God says, "Uh, no, there's 7,000. And Here Paul is using this as an example of how God always maintains for himself something what we call a remnant. A people who is faithful to him because they have faith in him. Verse 4, And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were grace, we would no uh, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. Paul's first uh, the, the first thing is, did God reject them? And he says, Nope. I'm an Israelite. I'm in the faith. And there are others, just as in the case of Elijah, where there were seven thousand, there was Peter. There was John, and there were uh, 120 followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost, and the, their number was added to daily. Remember the book of Acts? 3,000. Those were Jews. And at times, Gentiles would come in, but really not until you get to, uh, what is it, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10, where Peter has his vision and, and takes the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, so you see how. God is drawing the Jews in, but it's through faith. It's not through the law. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Then Paul asks another question. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. 
The others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. Again, we come back to our three-prong. God's word didn't fail because Israel stumbled. They could not recognize the Messiah as such. Because he did not come as the conquering king or the son of man, he came as the suffering servant. They stumbled, and their stumbling produced a hard-heartedness. Remember Romans chapter 1? Everybody remember this? You gotta, I'm really stretching your memory here, all the way back to like the third class. But how we read, mankind rejected God. We tried to usurp God, and that resulted in a giving over. Paul says it this way, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And then these things happened. And then God gave them over. That's exactly what's happening here. Our choices, our decisions result in a turning over, a a releasing to let us live out the full ramifications of that decision. Israel rejected their Messiah in Jesus Christ, and so God gave them over to let them live out the full reality of that. Which is, outside of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, there is no hope, right? That's the message of the gospel. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, Paul says God has given them over. What will, I'm going to reserve some, some time for questions at the end in case you want to ask about those because that, that's one of area that people typically want to ask questions. Uh, verse 11, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Now this is the real question. Did they fall so far that they can never be brought back? Uh, Not at all, Paul says. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Uh, And then Paul goes into this section, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, where he talks about the grafting uh, in... You know, he, he gives us the example of Israel as the vine, and he says, because of the vine's unbelief, they were cut off, and a new vine was grafted in. The Gentiles were grafted in. And he says, you have to understand that they can be regrafted back in, and you can be cut off. Okay? Be, they were cut off because of unbelief. Gentiles can be cut off because of unbelief too. And so he gets to uh, this, se- this section, verse 20, uh, Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Verse 22, Consider therefore the kindness of And sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. What is Paul saying? If an Israelite in Paul's day comes to him and hears the gospel and responds to the gospel in faith, Paul says God can graft them right back in. They have not been permanently shut out. The door is just as open to the Jews today as it was to the Gentiles. So this nationalistic turning over and blinding and all of that really is is sort of in the days of Jesus, right? After that time, it then becomes back open to them to where they can understand. 
Does that make sense? So that blinding was temporary, much like it was with Pharaoh, much like it was with many of the other individuals in the Old Testament, where God uses those to accomplish His purposes, His ultimate plans. Okay? I've got one, one final thing, and then, uh, and then we'll be ready for questions. This is the big one. Verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of the mystery. Here it is. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. What in the world? As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Now what does this mean? So we have this, uh, I will tell you, that these small little words have caused more harm, division, and and discord within the church than probably... um, as far as things that are actually in the Bible, uh, probably than anything else. Maybe the word rapture, which isn't in the Bible, has caused more. Uh, so we have this uh, the, these terms. All Israel will be saved. Really, uh, theologically, contextually, I think there are three possibilities as to what this means. And what's interesting is that each one of them tends to focus on a different part of this phrase. Uh, So, for instance, all could mean the remnant, all the remnant, or the faith followers of Jesus. And the emphasis here is on this word Israel. Do you remember the section in Romans chapter 4 where Paul says, Hey, not all Israel is Israel. Not all Abraham's children are Abraham's children. And so they focus on that section of the book of Romans and what we have here with Israel and and, and say that what Paul is talking about here is that the remnant who have not hardened themselves off to God is available to be saved or will be saved. Okay? And the other thing that this view tends to do is it focuses on Paul's time frame here. That when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he's talking about then and there in the first century. The problem that I have with that is Paul has already said that this is a mystery. This is something that is yet to be revealed. This is something that comes in the future. And so I don't think that Paul's necessarily talking about here something that's going to occur in the first century. Okay? So... I don't think that option number one is a good option, but I want to give you the option. Anyways, all could mean the remnant or the faith followers of Jesus, and the emphasis there would be on Israel rather than any of the other words in that statement. The second possibility is that all means here, and when I say all, I'm simply the phrase, all Israel will be saved, means in the same way as the Gentiles. There are some translations that translate this, thus, all Israel will be saved. And uh, this kind of looks at the entirety of chapter 11 and says, Israel is open to salvation, even though they have been blinded and they have been 
uh, they have rejected their Messiah. If they turn back, they can be brought back. And so this uh, essentially says, in the same way as the Gentiles, if they will bow the knee of faith, uh, they, they, they could come to salvation. And so this interpretation tends to focus on that word salvation. Saved. Um, the idea of justified. Israel could be justified just like the Gentiles if they will turn to God and seek His grace. Okay? So the first one involves uh, the remnant or the, the faithful followers. The second, again, would be contemporary with Paul and say that Israel can be saved in the same way as the Gentiles if they will simply come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. The third... Uh, way that this would be understood is that all Israel will be saved means that all Israel will be saved. At the unveiling of the Messiah at the second coming. Remember those passages in Isaiah where we saw in in a verse we saw uh, the suffering servant and we saw the conquering king. That this would mean that when Jesus comes Finally, at the end of all things, and he is revealed to be the son of David, the conquering king, the son of man, and the savior who has taken away the sins of the world. At that moment, Israel will bow the knee in recognition of their Messiah. Um, They will recognize the Messiah in his fulfillment of the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies. This understanding probably fits best with the prophetic context of what we have already looked at in Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and John. The historical context. Um, so we have this um, idea of uh, Jews and Gentiles and, and, the, and the animosity between them here in the Roman church. And then finally, the immediate context. Uh, what we're reading about in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Uh, This is my personal belief that what Paul is referring to here is from his perspective, at some time in the future when Jesus is unveiled, Israel, the nation, will turn back in totality to God uh, and will find salvation, justification in that moment. So those are your three possibilities, like I said. It's nothing that, you know, if you disagree with me, you're going to get kicked out of the class or anything like that. Uh, because honestly, that you know, if you look at verses 33 and following, who am I to say what God might be thinking? I do the best that we can to try and understand these things, but it's always with the understanding that God's ways are much higher than our ways. So if I'm wrong, you can, uh, I'll pay you a dollar when we get to heaven. So. <clears throat> Yes. Can't view two and three of what you just said? It seems to me like they're consistent with each other. That there's no real because because God deals with nations, but He also deals with nations through individuals. Yes. Yeah. And so we know today that if, if you know somebody uh, who's a Jew uh, you know confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, they're saved. Yep. yep. And in the, but that isn't inconsistent with at some point in the future that when the Messiah returns that the nation will turn yep. to him too. So I think those two are kind yep. of... You're, you're absolutely right. It's just the number two is always true, right? Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's true whether I mean that that is the gospel. Uh, so specifically trying to interpret this idea of all Israel will be saved, I think probably lends itself to number three better than number two. That's all I'm saying. So, but yeah, you're absolutely right. If a Jew confesses uh, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they're just as saved as you and I. As Kathy's got a friend that is Jewish and is on the path to faith. So. Problem is, she lives in California. <laughs> so you got the issue of distance there. So, anyways, okay, real quickly, I want to. Uh, so, what I want to do is re emphasize the truths from this section because, again, remember, this is a section. We kind of broke it up and looked at it in two pieces, but I want to re emphasize these. You're, you've got these on your paper. Um, and then we will take some time to, uh, if there are any questions that you may have. Central truth of this section of Romans, God has been faithful in fulfilling his plan by bringing a righteousness that has been offered by faith to all people. Exactly what you said. God has been offering um, righteousness to everyone, and it's always by faith. The question then for you and I is, can we submit to the truth that our salvation does not depend on our desire or effort, but rests solely on the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Can we say, it's not about me being good enough. It's not about me trying harder. It's not about me getting rid of these things in my life. It's about me recognizing that I am sinful, and God's grace can step into my life and redeem me from those things. And then Paul's going to go on and talk about how we live those things out. But... Uh, that's number one. That's how this section opened. Can we remain humble, continually recognizing our need of God's grace? This is the hardest thing to do as a Christian, is it not? You know, we we come to faith in Jesus and we recognize, oh, I need need thee every hour, every hour I need thee, and then we've been a Christian for ten years and like, eh, I got this. Let me show you how to do this. No! I need God just as much today as I did then. Uh, And then finally, can we resist the temptation to become hard-hearted in judgment of others who don't measure up to our standard of righteousness? Paul warned the Gentiles that, hey, be careful that you don't look upon Israel and see their hard-heartedness and say, you know, that, oh, they missed it. And he also says in this section, be careful because it was the hard-heartedness of the Israelites that caused them to stumble and miss it. Um, So he says, be careful. Remain pliable, remain humble. Okay, so that is this section. Uh, from here we're going to finish out the book with the uh, much more practical sense in the sense of everyday living. It's not so much theology as much as it is everyday living. But uh, I do want to take the opportunity to see if there are any questions, comments, those kinds of things that you guys have. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.